0: It's my pleasure to introduce to you today Dan Richter, who is Richard S. Dunn, Director of the McNeil Center for Early American Studies, and Edmund J. and Louise W. Kahn, Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. And you know when it takes that long to get your title out that you're probably somebody pretty important, um, and, and Dan is. Dan holds a Ph.D. from Columbia University, and his research and teaching focus on colonial North America and Native American history before 1800. Prior to joining the Penn faculty, he taught at East Anglia and Dickinson College, um, a college which which we have a new affiliation, most of you know, with our law school across the way. Um, I was just talking to Dan about this. Apparently, half of it is still there and half here, there's some interesting relationship, but um, we have that new relationship with Dickinson, and and Dan has taught there. It's an architectural delight of a building, I I hope you agree. Uh, Dan is the author of many books and collections, including The Ordeal of the Longhouse, The Peoples of the Iroquois, A Native History of Early America, and with Bill he edited the collection of essays, Friends and Enemies in Penn's Woods, Indians, Colonists, and the Racial Construction of Pennsylvania. James Merrill, who is Dan's co-editor of another well-received book of essays, entitled Beyond the Covenant Chain. The Iroquois and the Neighbors in North Indian North America, 1600-1800, to 1800, which was published in 1987 and revised and republished by Penn State Press in 2003. Uh, James Merrill has perhaps the most eloquent thing to say about the importance and achievement of perhaps Dan's most notable book, Facing East from Indian Country, A Native History of Early America, published in 2001 by Harvard University Press, a book that was awarded numerous prizes and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And then attempts brilliantly, I think, to tell the story of European American and Native American encounter in North America, not from a Western perspective, as has typically been the case, but through Native eyes. Writes Merrill, quote, from its title to its very last page, facing east from Indian country spins us around. But rather than dizzying, this turnabout is clarifying, freeing us from the blinders of a European perspective on the early American experience. Vast in scope, yet intimate in its attention to particular people, places, and moments, Richter's book is a moving, thought-provoking work of scholarship. I came to know Dan while living and working in Philadelphia as a postdoctoral fellow at the McNeil Center for Early American Studies. The McNeil Center is a place where early American scholars from around the nation, indeed from around the world, come together as fellows to share their work and attend seminars, conferences, and other gatherings hosted by the center. I was unprepared when I started there as a fellow in 2002 um, to come to terms, I guess, or I didn't expect what a good-hearted community the McNeil Center is, and I think this is directly attributable to Dan's capable stewardship of the McNeil Center as its director. Dan makes the center a space for early Americanists, many of whom are in a lot of cases, the only early American is working at their particular institution, uh, to be confirmed in their academic missions, to discover anew why and how early American scholarship and teaching matters. I am grateful then to Dan for his exemplary leadership of the McNeil Center and thrilled that he's driven from Philadelphia to deliver his lecture entitled Wars for Independence, Pennsylvanians, and Native Americans, 1500 to 1800.
1: Now I'm on? I'm on. Okay, good. Well, Now I really feel like I'm in an echo chamber. This is quite the the thing. I've never worn one of these things before either. I may have to get a guitar out before I'm done, too, to make that work. Okay, terrific to be here, and I hope you'll forgive me for... uh, I almost wore my not Penn State T-shirt from Penn, uh, but I did drag out my Penn tie, so, uh, you know. uh, Okay, well, um, it is uh, terrific to be here, and as... uh, As you know, uh, the the topic for this overall series, as I understand it, is Philadelphia in the Age of Revolution. And I have to begin by saying that there's a little bit of false advertising there. Um, I'm going to say nothing about Philadelphia today. Um, It's sort of Pennsylvania in the Age of the Revolution, but that's not really a good way of describing it either, I don't think. Uh, In that the landscape we're going to be talking about today uh, certainly was not Pennsylvania as many people, both native and English and French, uh, understood it. Uh, so uh, we might want to just uh, throw out that whole Pennsylvania and the Age of Revolution thing and focus instead on the subtitle of today's talk, which is Pennsylvanians and Native Americans. Okay? Uh, Pennsylvanians and Native Americans. In some ways, I suppose, um, we could have just turned that around. I had way too much time on my hands last night making this uh, PowerPoint. Um, And uh, I think the overall point is I do want to place the Native American experience first, but I certainly also want to try to put forward some ideas today about how we might think simultaneously about the wars for independence of Pennsylvanians, uh, citizens of the United States in general, and Native Americans in this period from about 1750 to 1800. So we'll go back to the original title with Pennsylvania first. Uh, but put the stress on multiple wars, okay? And uh, think in particular about uh, two sets of wars for independence that were occurring simultaneously. Uh, the one familiar one for the people who were creating the United States, and the other uh, familiar to some of us, but perhaps not to all, uh, the Revolution and the Wars for Independence that Native people were engaging in at the very same time. So uh, the two revolutions, one of them for Pennsylvanians, the other for Native Americans. Two revolutions, and I want to put forward, uh, just because I'm fixated on numbers today, uh, three axes of interpretation for thinking about, no, not that kind of axe. Three axes of interpretation, this kind of uh, axis, um, uh, to help us think a little bit about some frameworks within which we might put both native uh, and Euro-American experiences during their wars for independence together. So let's begin by talking about what I mean by three axes of interpretation. Uh, One of them, for lack of a better term, we might call an axis of causation. Second, we might call an axis that has to do with the nature of the struggle. And a third, getting us into some kind of Einsteinian space instead of Newtonian space, uh, we might call the object of the struggle. And to introduce these terms, I want to uh, bring in some very old historians uh, who I think remain quite uh, relevant today but continue in a lot of ways to structure our understanding of these issues for uh, the uh, revolutions. Uh, but in this sense, we've got sets of revolutions, not just two, uh, defined by some ways of thinking about interpreting uh, the causes, the object, and the nature of uh, the struggles for all the people involved. Okay? So interpreting the Pennsylvanians' revolutions. Um, let's begin with perhaps the simple one Uh, I think we're all used to think of great historical events as involving both long-term and short-term causes, right? And uh, I think almost anybody who's tried to understand uh, what we call, for lack of a better term, the American Revolution uh, comes to terms with some kind of finding a space along the spectrum of short-term versus long-term. There is the exceedingly long-term view, I suppose, that some people still might hold that there is a gradual expansion of the notion of liberty since sometime with the ancient Greeks uh, down to the 18th century. Um, More uh, typically, we'll talk about uh, long simmering structural problems in the British Empire uh, that come to a head uh, in the 18th century. Uh, This sometimes uh, was called even in the 18th century, the things in the womb of time approach. Uh, Things were just just building over time. And certainly there's much we have to talk about in that sense. Uh, And I'm not gonna go into all of this right now, but certainly we know that we think about long-term structural and other uh, uh, developments, demographic developments, political developments uh, that uh, help us understand the American Revolution. But also I think, um, and here uh, I tend more on this end of the spectrum, we certainly have to pay attention to very short-term even accidental causes of uh, the war for independence for um, uh, people in the British colonies, uh, focusing in particular on developments immediately after the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War uh, that led to all sorts of unpleasant issues of taxation and, uh, and imperial governments, governance uh, that led, uh, in, often in a quite unpredictable way, to uh, the um, uh, war for independence that we're familiar with. So I just want to lay that out there. Of course, you know, one spectrum we need to think about is short-term, long-term causes, uh, and uh, at, at any point for a whole variety of issues, one might stress. Um, Something accidental that happened on a Thursday afternoon in 1763, uh, as opposed to long-term developments that are deeply embedded in the the history of North America and the British Empire as a whole. Uh, The second axis I want to talk about comes from our old friend Carl Lotus Becker, uh, who the uh, historians in the room certainly know and... Uh, uh, perhaps even hate at this point, Carl Otis Becker, who in his tremendously boring but influential book, History of the Political Parties in the Province of New York, 1760 to 1776, threw away in the last paragraph one of the enduring lines of American historiography. Threw away just as I threw away my thing here. There we go. I guess that's it. I'll try to provide entertainment in that way, if nothing else. This is up around my eye, what am I done wrong That's right. (laughs) Yes, in his fascinating book, called, (laughs) Uh, he famously said, the American Revolution was a result of two general movements, the contest for home rule and independence, and the democratization of American politics and society. Of these movements, the latter was fundamental. It began before the contest for home rule, and was not completed until after the achievement of independence. From 1765 to 1776, therefore, two questions were about equally prominent. The first was the question of home rule. The second was the question of who should rule at home. Okay, So this classical formulation, which I think most historians now would certainly say didn't end in 1776, uh, perhaps even continues uh, to the present day, uh, which is uh, that in a lot of ways the more fascinating and interesting questions about uh, the American Revolution have to do with the question of who should rule at home, questions of class conflict, questions of competing elites, questions of the nature of the political system that was being created, Uh, and in this sense um, the war for independence uh, becomes far less interesting than the war over who should rule at home uh, that uh, that takes place simultaneously with it, and certainly it's not over when that war uh, is over. So using Becker's terms then, we can think about this issue of the nature of the struggle, with home rule on one end who should rule at home on the other. And we have a kind of multi-dimensional grid here, where in terms of any particular issue, why did a certain person choose the side he or she did? Is it a mixture of certain kind of short-term causation focused on who should rule at home, long-term home rule, okay? And placing individuals, placing various questions, you know, uh, why... Are we fixated on a certain kind of taxation, for instance? And where does that fit into these kinds of mechanisms of of interpretation? Uh, So what I'm just saying is that you you, you put these things together and we begin to place both historians and historical actors into some kind of framework for understanding uh, uh, the the revolution uh, in, uh, in, uh, in complicated ways. Uh, the third axis comes from another old historian, Theodore Roosevelt, and as you know, he was an historian as well as many other things. Um, uh, here, literally astride the study in the globe, uh, showing his uh, mastery of all fields. Uh, and in a somewhat less noticed quotation, but one that I made uh, something of in my book Facing East... Uh, Theodore Roosevelt said some fairly ugly things about the American Revolution, which he thought were attractive, but we find probably fairly ugly. Uh, He also talked about a two-fold character of the American Revolution in the same way that a bit later Becker would, uh, but making it a very different two-fold scheme. Uh, It was this that gave the revolution its two-fold character, said Roosevelt in his book The Winning of the West. Uh, It was uh, making it on the part of the Americans a struggle for independence in the East and in the West, a war of conquest, or rather a war to establish on behalf of all our people the right of entry into the fertile and vacant regions beyond the uh, Alleghenies. Okay? Fertile, yes. Vacant, we know, not so much. Okay? Uh, but his emphasis here uh, is on another way of thinking about the twofold nature of the revolution. Right? It's both a struggle for independence, with all that means, and I would say that's the struggle that Becker has at least on a two-fold spectrum, okay? Um, But also, uh, this war of conquest for the continental interior, and one that Roosevelt strictly put in uh, uh, racial terms, okay? Uh, Being the um, 19th century scholar he was, uh, and steeped in the scientific racism of his day, uh, he actually saw this war of conquest as very much a good thing, okay? Ultimately, most righteous of all wars is a war with savages, although it is apt to also be the most terrible and inhuman. The rude, fierce settler who drives the savage from the land lays all civilized mankind under a debt to him. It is of incalculable importance that America, Australia, and Siberia should pass out of the hands of the red, black, and yellow aboriginal owners and become the heritage of the dominant world races. Okay? Uh, we uh, don't like to hear that, <laughs> okay. uh, and I hope it does set many of our teeth on edge. Uh, But um, this gets at, I think, a core element of uh, what the American Revolution was for many Pennsylvanians, uh, many people in the United States in general at the time. Uh, It was, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, a war between the races okay? uh, that involved a conquest of a vast territory in the continental interior uh, that is in many ways hard to separate from the war that involves uh, separation of the United States from Great Britain. Uh, and uh, certainly much of the recent literature, particularly focused on Pennsylvania and the Ohio Valley, uh, has highlighted this racial character of the struggles of those periods and um, highlighted, among other things, uh, in the work of uh, Gregory Knuff, who some of you may know, uh, who has a terrific book on um, the uh, memories of Pennsylvania soldiers during the American Revolution. And, uh Soldiers from what is today Western Pennsylvania almost never talked about fighting the British. All they ever talked about was fighting the Indians, right? And for them, the war was uh, this war, uh, what that Roosevelt called a war of conquest and a war of racial conquest. So I want to introduce um, unpleasantly into our spectrum of uh, causation here uh, this uh, other twofold nature of the revolution war for independence, but also a war of conquest uh, over uh, lands uh, of, the, of the continental interior. This will call, for lack of a better term, what um, Roosevelt did, the object of the struggle, uh, with a spectrum from independence at one end, conquest at the other. Uh, And to complicate things a little bit more, um, fertile and vacant regions beyond the Alleghenies, land, key words for Roosevelt. Uh, We might um, also think that independence on the one hand, conquest on the other. Um, involves some spectrum of a vision of liberty for white Americans rooted in access to the property that that land represents. Okay? And here, again, to further complicate things, and if I had one more way of illustrating on a two dimensional space, four dimensions of something, right? Um, uh, it, might, it might be worth thinking that this notion of independence. Um, and this notion of conquest uh, deeply intertwined for white Americans with a sense that independence involves the kind of control of property and landed values, okay, uh, that undergird for many white Americans their sense not only of citizenship but their sense of manhood and their sense of what it means uh, to really achieve that liberty, Okay. Uh, and as we think, if we follow uh, the high-flown rhetoric traced by people like Bernard Balin and J- John Pocock and others in this period, and think about the nature of liberty rooted in notions of life, liberty, and property, right uh, that uh, you know, the, the uh, role that that Western land plays uh, for many, certainly not all, but for many white Americans uh, in their personal definition of what independence and liberty means is something we want to, uh, I think, uh, uh, unpleasantly keep in front of us as we think about these, these issues. Okay. And I am going to be hopeless with this ear thing. Good. Okay. He says I'm good. I don't know whether I am or not. Um, now, I want to also suggest that we can use a very similar... very similar set of three axes of interpretations to think about uh, the wars for independence and the revolutions that Native Americans were, uh, were experiencing in this very same period. Okay. Um, the first one, the liberty and land thing is almost too easy once we put it in the way we did for uh, white Americans. right? <laughs> Clearly, and in the most fundamental terms, should... White Americans succeed in Roosevelt's struggle for conquest of the continent. Uh, this must come at the expense of uh, central goals of Native people in that same period. They're fighting over the same land, they're fighting over the same liberties. Uh, and here, uh, like matter and antimatter, the two sets of revolutions can't coexist, or rather, they are invariably in conflict with each other. And uh, the success of one revolution uh, clearly involves uh, the uh, defeat of the other, right? Um, and here then, um, I think it is, uh, doesn't require too much of a stretch of our imagination to think that um, uh, for Native Americans, we have to think about this land and liberty spectrum as being absolutely central to what uh, they are fighting for in this period as well, uh, because uh, again, the, the struggle is, is absolutely the same one that, uh, that uh, white Americans are engaged with. Uh, The land we're talking about, of course, uh, is uh, the vast interior of eastern North America. A territory in which a whole uh, variety of very powerful native peoples uh, had established themselves in the 18th century as major players in the struggle between empires. but also importantly, uh, an area of the continent in which there have been vast upheaval uh, in terms of populations and political developments in native communities uh, throughout uh, the colonial period, and in particular in the early and middle decades of the 18th century. Uh, This map comes from uh, Jane Merritt's wonderful book uh, on uh, the Ohio country in the 18th century, Uh, and uh, I think several things should jump out at you. Uh, one is that Native people and Euro-American Pennsylvanians are all mixed up together. Uh, there is not a clear frontier in what we today call, well, what we today call State College and Happy Valley and Points West. Okay, um, and also for the Native communities, also a very mixed picture with lots of different folks: Delawares, Shawnees, Iroquois people. Um, refugees and relocated people from all over Eastern North America, settling sometimes in the same villages, sometimes in separate villages, up and down a river from each other, okay? A very, very complicated landscape in which, it's important to remember, uh, while there is no questioning the right of native people to defend this land, okay? Uh, What particular native people own that land and who is in charge among the native people Uh, is not at all clear, right? And in fact, one of the difficulties of this region is that nobody in that area is under any kind of clear central government. The Pennsylvanians are out of control. Um, uh, The Virginians are trying to assert control over populations, which, some of which are Virginians, some of which are Pennsylvanians, right? Uh, and among native communities, no clear central power either. Uh, there is a pretension on the part of the Five Nations Iroquois to the north uh, to be the overlords of this region, but that certainly is not a pretension that many of the people on the ground share and one that in very recent times has been uh, uh, a particularly strained relationship, okay? Uh, here in many ways is my favorite map of this region in the 18th century. This comes from the Handbook of North American Indians. Um, memorize all the arrows, arrows on this map and, uh, and uh, repeat it to me uh, later on at the reception this afternoon. Um, what we really need to picture, though, is the movement in and out and the sense of people uh, you know, constantly uh, in motion. Uh, the confused native landscape of this region is very, very crucial for us to understand the nature of the land liberty spectrum that we are talking about, Okay. Uh, These are, for the most part, people who have moved within the last generation or two into the region. Many of them have ancestral claims on this land. Shawnees, in particular, seem to have been forced out of there in the 17th century and come back in the 18th century. Um, But uh, all of them, uh, for various reasons, have uh, deep-seated grievances against the English colonies, including some very deep-seated and relatively recent grievances against Pennsylvania. uh, lead them, among many other things, to not be inclined to move yet again uh, and to uh, uh, make a stand to defend uh, to defend this territory. Okay. Liberty and land. Okay, so here uh, I think I begin to give you a sense of how the issue of home rule versus who shall rule at home plays out for Native Americans. Okay, the home rule part is easy, isn't it? Right, uh, that the defense of native lands in this region involves native people being able to control their own affairs. Uh, they, of course, have been living for generations in a world of trading connections with European empires, French and the British in the north, French, British, and Spanish in the south, Okay, um, but uh, have managed to maintain their political autonomy throughout all of that. I should just hold it or something. I'll just do this. Um, clearly, I can't be a rock star because I can never <laughs> hold this thing. Will this mic work? Yeah. Okay. I'm am standing still. I'm not pacing around too much. So we'll just do that. Um, but just as importantly, um, a uh, tremendous struggle over <laughs> tremendous struggle over technology and other <laughs> issues. <laughs> that- You're good. Okay, he says I'm done. I guess I'm are leaving. Now, a tremendous struggle over what the nature of home rule might be, who uh, and how and what that uh, uh, shape of, uh, of native governments of this region might be, uh, and certainly a, c- a continued uh, dilemma involved with Uh, relationships with European imperial powers, and relationships with the new imperial power of the United States, and how to maintain autonomy uh, in in that situation. Superimposed on this uh, is the emergence in the middle of the 18th century of the phenomenon known as Pan-Indianism, or as Gregory Dowd and other scholars often refer to it, nativism, uh, which is a relatively new idea or at least a relatively invigorated, new, newly invigorated idea uh, that uh, begins to take hold, particularly in these communities in the greater Ohio Valley region in the middle years of the 18th century, uh, arguing in a coherent way, perhaps for the first time, that all native people have something in common, that there is something called redness. And this seems to be the, a term that people were actually using in native communities, not the English word red, but Uh, Native words for that concept, Uh, that there is a racial unity among Native Americans that needs to be embraced, and the long-term rivalries among tribal groups uh, need to be somehow superseded uh, in a grand effort to unite against uh, the European powers, and in particular, uh, the uh, threats represented by British colonists and later uh, the United States. Um, We know about this. Partly secondhand, partly firsthand, partly through oral traditions. Uh, uh, these ideas are associated most primarily with the man named Neolin, known to Europeans as the Delaware prophet, but he's certainly not the only one. In fact, there are a whole variety of prophets in this region in the mid 18th century, some of them women, some of them men, uh, all preaching variations on this idea that Native people have a common origin, a common destiny and a common imperative from their creator to unite against the threat of Europeans. Uh, Focused uh, often on uh, the doctrines that Dowd calls separate creations. That the creator had, in fact, created three separate races at three separate times, placed them on three separate continents. That is, the white man in Europe, the black man in Africa, the red man in North America. Um, clearly, there was a hierarchy among those races for Native Americans, okay? uh, best expressed, I think, by something that Naolin apparently said, which was that um, out of these three races, only the white people needed a book to tell them how to behave. <laughs> okay. uh, but nonetheless, the, the common idea is that there is this uh, unity and that indeed the difficulties of Native Americans uh, that they face is because the Creator is angry at them uh, for uh, giving up their uh, traditional ways, and in particular for allowing white people to come into the territory that uh, the Creator had set aside for them, and to bring into that territory black people, and to mix up uh, the uh, uh, divine order of things that had been uh, that had been established. Uh, this is a powerful doctrine, and one that. Uh, uh, motivates uh, people to take up arms, to, to engage in all kinds of symbolic a- efforts to purge themselves of European goods and influences, uh, and is a constant theme through the period uh, that we call the era of the American Revolution, uh, ebbing and flowing under the influence of various prophets who are preaching this campaign for Native American unity, uh, while at the same time being opposed by lots of other forces who uh, argue for localism and tribal identity. Right, And in this sense, um, it's not at all dissimilar to what's going on in the white communities, where you have people preaching some vision of nationalism around the values of republicanism, uh, while others clinging also in the name of republicanism to uh, local authority and local uh, uh, rights. Uh, and uh, this uh, same kind of struggle is going on within, uh, within native communities uh, or, or around the notion of, uh, of nativism. Uh, this is a chart that was supposedly used by Neolin to illustrate central core uh, cores of his teaching. Uh, this comes uh, from a very poor reproduction in a book that was published uh, uh, in 1808 to 1811. I've looked at several copies of this book, and I've never seen one that, where you can clearly see what's going on in this crucial box down here. Um, so in, in, in a kind of weird way, this effort by a white person to reproduce the chart of Native Americans uh, leaves us with as much of a puzzle as, uh, as, uh, as, as anything else. Uh, but uh, some things are clear that's going on. Uh, whatever's going on in this box is what is uh, the influence of uh, Europeans that is preventing Native people from following the path uh, that leads them, on the one hand, to paradise, on the other hand, to the devil and destruction. Okay. Um, and that it is indeed the um, influence of white people that have blocked that path and have uh, have, uh, created uh, the uh, dilemma that uh, that Native people face. Again, it is no surprise that it is in these mixed ethnic ethnic communities of the Ohio country uh, that these ideas of pan-Indianism and nativism seem to have their origin, uh, again, no surprise because you have people living together from a variety of traditions, all of whom have brought uh, 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 their own histories of, uh, of tragic dealings with, Na- with uh, Europeans with them, uh, and who are in fact discovering their common identity as Native Americans in these mixed communities uh, of the Ohio Valley, and using that common identity as a way of mobilizing people against um, against the Europeans and against the United States in particular. Okay. notice I've worked backwards through my three spectrums. right? Um, And uh, here, too, again, I think we can begin to understand the long-term and short-term. Certainly, the relationship between Native people and things and people from Europe has developed over several centuries. But in particular, uh, the uh, events of very recent years, again, short-term causes seem to be as important as anything. The end of the Seven Years' War, the transformation of the imperial climate in North America as a result, uh, is a, um, a hugely important uh, factor in transforming uh, all of these issues uh, for uh, Native Americans. Okay? If we were to look at a map of North America in the middle years of the 18th century, uh, what in many ways is most striking is how much of the eastern part of the continent is still firmly under Native control, a variety of different rivalrous Native groups, but nonetheless uh, having uh, carved out a place for themselves uh, in The uh, late 17th and early 18th century, there, uh, surrounded by French here, the English here, Spanish here, uh, but uh, not so much surrounded as, turn turn that view around a little bit, you've got a native continent uh, with European people on its fringes, right? Uh, All of whom can be played off against each other. bit of an oversimplification, but here's the map after the Seven Years' War, when the French and the Spanish are largely gone, Uh, the Spanish having swapped Florida essentially for um, Louisiana, right? Um, But suddenly, Native people who in particular have been able to play off the French and the English, North and South, against each other, uh, now are facing the um, British Empire alone, right? Uh, As uh, for the first time, a map that looks like white Americans always thought it should look with a clear frontier line, Europeans expanding from the east, native people presumably retreating in the west. Um, This is a a relatively new situation on a large scale in North America. Local groups had always faced this from as early as uh, Jamestown in the 1610s, 1620s. But on a broad scale uh, that fits into this notion of a continent-wide Indian identity, uh, it is only after 1763 that, for the first time, you've got this clear sense that all the Europeans are here, all the Native Americans are here. Okay, uh, and uh, clearly that uh, that expansionary uh, uh, European presence uh, is the one that's driving what Roosevelt called that other aspect of the American Revolution, uh, the conquest of uh, the interior. So uh, I hope we don't. Well, we never look at this picture the way we used to, right? Um, Daniel Boone leading people into the promised land, into the empty wilderness, and all the rest, wilderness. Okay. Um, but uh, this, in this sense, you know, Daniel Boone uh, representing here thousands and thousands of people who are not as famous as he was, okay, uh, is the face of that expansionist side of the American Revolution, uh, and is the side of that revolution that native people uh, are facing in, in this period. On both sides, racial hatreds are being consciously inflamed. I didn't make too much of this, but Neolin certainly has nothing good to say about white people and very many things to say that are good about red people. It is, for lack of a better term. using this term advisedly, a racial view of the world. okay Indians are one kind of people, Europeans are another. Uh, in the same period, uh, racialized views of the struggle are... Uh, permeating uh, white society with the circulation of images like this one, the, the image and the story of the death of Jane McRae, who inconveniently was not um, a uh, U.S. patriot but a, um, a loyalist. Okay? Um, and the whole story is all kind of messed up because she's on the wrong side. and there's a whole thing. But in any event, the point is the cruelty of the Indian uh, warriors, uh, which, of course, Native people are uh, countering with their stories of George Washington, the town destroyer, right, and uh, their uh, uh, memories of infamous events like the Sullivan Campaign, which destroyed um, uh, tens of uh, uh, Native communities and massive amounts of corns and cornfields and orchards in the uh, 1780s. Right? Uh, not surprisingly, these two wars inflame racial hatreds. Okay? Um, that chart comes from a book with the uh, not-so-subtle title, "Interesting Narratives of the Outrages Committed by the Indians in Their Wars with the White People."
0: Okay?
1: Um, Neoland's chart might be a chart of the outrages created by whites against the Indian people, right? Uh, my point is the racial hatreds that are inflaming on both sides here uh, that are every bit as important as the ideology that we've talked about. Uh, this is a chart from Peter Silver's recent book, and he shows how um, there is a distinct peak at various points here in. Uh, Uses of the term "white" to describe Native Americans, or describe uh, white white Americans, to describe European Americans, Uh, and uh, Silver argues, and I think quite compellingly, that this idea—I should just throw out all this technology—and Neilan was right, right? Uh, uh, Argues quite compellingly, uh, seriously, uh, that uh, this is uh, this era of the American Revolution, broadly defined. Uh, is the great turning point when European-Americans begin seeing themselves as a white race, describing themselves as white, right, uh, and seeing in that, uh, in that racial identity something very, very crucial for uh, who they uh, are as Americans and as uh, the people carrying out their revolution. All right, to bring, this, uh, bring the two revolutions to... Uh, uh, firmly into conflict and perhaps to, um, I hope, maybe make some of this a little more real than, uh, than it did otherwise. Uh, we do need to uh, remember uh, that uh, it might be interesting to superimpose some maps that are familiar and some un- unfamiliar ones. Okay? Uh, this is the map I have of Native America before the American Revolution. Something like this is a little more commonly seen in textbooks and elsewhere. Uh, this is a map uh, that, uh, again, it comes from a standard collection that came with a textbook at some point that I came across my desk, right? Um, that shows, of course, one of the great achievements of the period of the Articles Confederation for the United States, uh, the arrangements whereby the various states gave up their Western land claims, okay? Uh, the land claims uh, seated here by Virginia, North Carolina, Connecticut, Massachusetts, all the rest, okay? Uh, note that Pennsylvania is not included in that. Okay. Um, and, of course, this is also one of those classic textbooks maps which just says these are Western land claims. Um, there is no other claim there that these are not necessarily native lands. right? Uh, and I think one of the stories that tends to get lost, one of the many stories that gets lost about the period under the Articles of Confederation in the late years of the War for Independence and the early years before the Constitution uh, is how crucial this struggle for Western lands, i.e. native lands, uh, is to the politics, the developments, and indeed the economic life uh, of uh, the new United States, okay? And as we think about ceding Western land claims, as we think about that other great uh, achievement of the uh, Confederation period, the Northwest Ordinance, um, as I always tell people, we know why Midwesterners are square, because they right from the start, right? Um, again, this is often just presented in the abstract, right? As rightfully presented as a tremendous political achievement among rivalrous American politicians, right? Uh, to get the various states to give up their Western land claims, to come up with this ingenious scheme for organizing settlement in the region by drawing nice straight lines that are entirely predictable. okay? Come up with this ingenious scheme that new states will be the equals of old states, right? Uh, all of which, of course, we know has something to do with this thing much later called manifest destiny and all of this, right uh, But put this in the context of the two revolutions we've talked about, and the war for conquest, and this really is the boring bureaucratic mechanism whereby the conquest is achieved, okay um, and um, achieved in a way that uh, often involves a vision of using these Western lands to solve the various financial and other difficulties of the states. Okay? Again, so you've got on the one hand the dreams of white men who are seeing themselves as white men entitled to conquer this land and seeing for themselves the vision of owning a farm out there in Kentucky or somewhere. right? But on the other hand, you've got great uh, politicians in the East seeing that same land uh, as a great opportunity to do a lot of things financially and otherwise uh, to achieve the stability of the new, uh, the new republic. Okay. Here's another thing to memorize before we meet again. I tried to line up the various things that are involved with the Northwest Ordinance and its related activities. Okay. And you see here uh, in blue, 1780 through 1784, uh, these are the crucial elements in the various states giving up their claims to this land. And the key thing was when Virginia uh, caved in in March 1784. A Month later, Jefferson drafts what became the Northwest Ordinance ultimately of 1787. A Few months later, we have the first of a series of treaties, the Treaty of Fort Stanwix, the Treaty of Fort McIntosh, the Treaty of Fort Finney, the Treaty of Fort Harmar. Uh, These are the alleged treaties whereby the land covered by the Northwest Ordinance is transferred from native owners to the United States. Every one of these treaties is almost universal, universally agreed by historians today to have been fraudulent and coerced. They took place in forts because, literally, they took place under the protection of guns. Okay? The uh, native chiefs who finally signed these documents, if they signed them at all, uh, were, uh, did it under coercion or without the authority of the people back home. Uh, these are highly controversial, to say the least, in Native communities, part of that who should rule at home issue, right? Um, and uh, in particular, a lead to uh, the very violent war of the 1790s in the Ohio country, in which Native people are insisting that these are not legitimate treaties, okay? My point in this timeline, however, is that uh, this is all mixed up. The, in the midst of negotiating these treaties, they pass the Northwest Land Ordinance before they actually have clear treaty rights to this land, okay? chronology is significant. Um, And um, indeed, it's not going to be till 1795 uh, when the Treaty of Greenville imposes a reasonably accepted peace and boundary line uh, in which many Native people at least agree that some legitimate process of treaty making took place uh, that the United States is able to secure from Native Americans um, uh, title to even a portion of the land that uh, they had claimed as early as 1785 as part of the Northwest Ordinance. Uh, So I want to argue that um, despite my jokes about the Northwest Ordinance being square and all that kind of stuff, um, this is in fact an aggressive political act by the United States uh, to assert its authority over this uh, region that is so uh, crucial to the United States in that period. And part and parcel, of course, of the, uh, the great expropriation of native lands that will occur Uh, during the period of the American, uh, early American Republic to 1783 uh, to 1810. All of this, of course, before the famous Trail of Tears in the southeast involving the Cherokees, Creeks, Chickasaws, and others. Um, But uh, clearly, uh, part of what Roosevelt was talking about when he said these lands will pass into the hands of the white races. Here's Pennsylvania's version of a map like this. This entire area here is acquired in those treaties that I just talked about, Treaty of Fort Stanwix and Treaty of Fort Harmar, 1784, 1785. uh, Roughly one third of the present state. Uh, I believe it was we mentioned uh, Dickinson School of Law earlier. I believe it was John Dickinson himself as president of the Council of Pennsylvania who came up with (laughs) with a wonderful phrase, the acknowledged limits of this commonwealth. (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, who acknowledged them? Uh, well, what's acknowledged is, uh, again, this huge expropriation of native land immediately after the American Revolution and during, again, that period of the Articles of Confederation. Uh, this land in the minds of many Pennsylvania politicians is the key to an awful lot of stuff. Okay. Uh, in 1783... go back here a second, note that territory there, this is the western half of it. They set aside this huge area in dark blue as what they call donation lands, uh, the somewhat smaller area the depreciation lands. Uh, These lands are initially set aside essentially to to pay much of Pennsylvania's debt from the War of Independence, in particular its debt in the form of what it owed to its own soldiers. Uh, Instead of issuing soldiers um, actual cash money as their enlistment bonuses, uh, they gave them certificates they called donations uh, for land. Uh, Technically, these these certificates could be used anywhere in in Pennsylvania. But in 1783, they set aside this huge territory of this land recently uh, taken from Native Americans uh, as the territory that they thought most of these donations would would take place. Uh, Depreciation lands were a similar concept Uh, State troops had been paid, of course, in depreciated paper currency that was worth very little. Uh, They came up with a scheme whereby they gave them certificates for land, which was to make up for the lost income of their depreciated uh, payments. As of 1790, there was at least a $1.5 million outstanding in these depreciation uh, uh, certificates as debt, and this is probably three-quarters of the outstanding state debt. $1.5 million, of course, was real money in those days, right? Um as one historian said, land was going to be the path to solvency." okay Now, it just so happens that actually it didn't entirely work out this way in Pennsylvania. Uh, they had difficulty actually getting ordinary soldiers to take up this land. Uh, many people either sold their certificates to speculators, which of course happened to all this throughout this whole period, right? Uh, Or they took up lands elsewhere in the state. But it doesn't matter for my purposes. What matters is that the plan was Pennsylvania is going to solve its financial crisis through the use of uh, lands conquered in the American Revolution. The story is a whole lot clearer to the North in New York State uh, where, again, huge amounts of land are expropriated from Native Americans in the years immediately after the Revolution. Uh, This map comes from Alan Taylor's wonderful book, The Divided Ground, which came out a couple of years ago. And he calculated the amount of revenue in the early 1790s that came from the sale of these Native American lands, $1.1 million throughout that period, um, leading to hefty surpluses for the state, and um, leading to a situation in which land sales uh, represented roughly half of the income of the state of New York in the early 1790s. Okay, Now, put this on a broader scale, uh, we all know that throughout the early republic and early 19th century, what was the biggest source of income for the U.S. federal government? Sale of Western lands, sale of Native American lands, right? Um, and here, too, we can, you know, again, get an insight into just how fundamental this concept of the conquest of land was Uh, to the uh, emerging political order created uh, by the United States in this period. Uh, This is not to discount everything else we say about the American Revolution. It's all true, right? Um, This was all about liberty. It was all about uh, uh, all kinds of wonderful things, but it was also all about uh, getting Native American land to make those visions of liberty uh, for white Americans uh, possible. So uh, I'll wrap this up here, I think. This leaves us probably 20 minutes or so for for some questions. And um, I just want to, again, reiterate that if we think in terms of this spectrum of long and short-term causes, who should rule at home, home rule, the land liberty equation, uh, we, I hope, can get a sense of the uh, overlapping and conflicting qualities of the wars for independence, how the goals of Native Americans and the goals of white Americans Uh, inevitably clashed in this period, uh, and how, uh, among other things, we can uh, see deeply how the experience of Native Americans was uh, central to uh, the uh, formative experience of uh, the United States. So we'll stop there. All right, so we've got some time for questions. Um, Just put your hand up so I can
0: As early as the early part of the 19th century, you had people, certainly in New England, speaking up for the rights of black people and humanity in humanitarian terms. Didn't anyone ever discuss the idea of humanitarian
1: treatment of the Indians? Uh, Absolutely, and thanks for bringing that up. I mean, I I, one of the things I hope that we can uh, include in that broad heading by Carl Otis Specker, of who should rule at home? Is that all these things are controversial and people are always arguing over things, right? Um, and certainly, if you think about the period of um, immediate abolitionism in 19th century in the 19th century U- U.S., right? Uh, many of the same people who were um, same white people in New England and elsewhere, uh, New England and the Upper Midwest, who were um, adamant abolitionists and adamantly uh, defending the rights of African Americans were adamantly opposing uh, the removal of the Cherokees and, and the Creeks in that period, right? Uh, but in a, in a way that, um, and certainly in the in the period that we're talking about here, the 1780s and 1790s, Quakers and others were speaking up for the rights of Native Americans, right? Um, but it's it's a distinctly minority view and often phrased in terms of that that bring to mind the old cliche about with friends like these who needs enemies, okay, uh, in that the assumption always is that the Native way of life can't survive, right, uh, that this land must ultimately be put to a better use than Native Americans use, uh, use it for. Uh, and the Friends of Indians argue we should keep the Native people on the land so that we can transform them into private property owners um, and uh, – uh, you know, the, the the idea that Native people should actually get to keep their land and live on it the way they want to live on it is one that seldom if ever enters the discourse of white Americans, okay? There's a hard side and a soft side, right? Um, the soft side says we have a humanitarian responsibility to help Native people um, join civilization. Uh, the hard side says kill them all, right? And that's the spectrum. You know, again, that, that's that's not so much oversimplifying. It it is a complicated discourse within that, right? And uh, one that involves very, very deep disputes about particularly the legitimacy of of, um, Andrew Jackson's policies in the the early 19th century, uh, but one that really doesn't leave much room for um, uh, uh, Native people to really be masters of their own fate, right? Um, And uh, again, helps you understand, perhaps, why Prophets like Neolin and Tecumseh and others were so effective um, in um, getting many Native people to see quite clearly what the what was facing them when they were facing white Americans.
2: Um, I was wondering if I could follow up on that question. Mm-hmm. Where would you, in your talk, you spoke mm-hmm. very structuralist terms mm-hmm. about the revolution, mm-hmm. about historical forces, and you left
1: you out- You found a, me out, yes. And <laughs> you left out a
2: very important <laughs> Uh, force, Mm -hmm. even if one wants to remain within that structuralist Mm -hmm. model, and that is the force of religion. Mm -hmm. You brought that up just now when you were talking about the Mm -hmm. Quakers, um, and I'd like to actually follow up on the previous question. Mm -hmm. Where would you place a group like the Moravians, for example, with a way in which they negotiate in um, native people's terms, in native Mm -hmm. people's languages, Mm -hmm. about the use of land Um, and their whole interaction with native peoples has been very much until recently sub- submerged mm-hmm. under the forces of historiography.
1: Uh, yes, thank you very much. Well, um, one of the things that both of your questions have done is very usefully remind us that everything is way more complicated than a three-dimensional chart can, can begin to pick out. But I would say, actually, in many respects, the Moravians um, illustrate as powerfully as anything else uh, how Constrained um, actors were by the increasingly racialized conflict that we're talking about. Right, uh, Moravians, uh, whether uh, whether of European descent or Native American descent, um, are literally getting chewed up by the conflict on the both sides. Both seen most most prominently in the um, in the massacre at Nadenhutten in uh, 1784, five. Okay. Um, in which um, uh, you know, Moravians, after having been chased with their Native American converts out of various places in Pennsylvania, establish themselves in the Muskegon Valley in Ohio uh, and uh, immediately come under huge pressure from British allied Indians to get out of there, move to Muskegon, move to Sandusky. They actually do that. These people come back to try to harvest some corn after a starving winter, and then get caught up by this Pennsylvania militia, which uh, uh, massacres all of them. P- uh, the missionaries have to flee to Canada. Uh, I think that um, you know, both parts are right. The Moravians are a perfect example of how not everybody is accepting the framework I've just given you. But they're also, I think, a perfect example of um, how increasingly difficult it is to maintain any kind of uh, cross-cultural dialogue in, the, in this period of war and, and racial hatreds.
2: Thanks so much for putting up the timeline on the Northwest Ordinance. Um, I hadn't realized that the land wasn't actually secured at the time that the ordinance was passed. Um, did anybody at the time actually object to the ordinance because the lands weren't secured? Like, did anybody in Congress say, well, we haven't actually made treaties with all of the Native Americans in this area?
1: I think, um, I have to ask Peter Rohner for some other people who know the the, congressional debates over the Northwest Ordinance better than I do. Uh, but what is clear from my reading of the treaty minutes and from people who were involved at Fort Harmer and Fort Stanwix and these other treaties is that they were under enormous pressure. I mean, they had to get this done. They had to get these treaties signed, right? Um, and um, that pressure was coming from uh, the fact that, uh, well, first off, settlers, white settlers were already out there. And one of the reasons that the Northwest Ordinance is necessary is to get the uh, uh, is to get the governments and the speculators uh, back in control of the situation, uh, but they're under extraordinary pressure. And one of the uh, one of the Pennsylvania negotiators, he comes back and you just read in his letters, he's just utterly devastated. He's like, it's the most unpleasant work I ever did. You know, but uh, you know, he came back with the signatures and he's got a piece of paper that says that uh, the United States has uh, legal title to this land. Um, and so in that case, um, and in all of these cases, that it, it's. There's also a long-term and a short-term issue here because uh, what had developed since the 17th century in North America was that governments can't issue land titles to their own citizens unless they have a clear paper trail of treaties with Native Americans that put that in their hands. Uh, And this whole thing is... uh, you know, moved into this mode of uh, we got to coerce some chief to sign a treaty so that we have the paper trail that will say that all this is going to work, right? Uh, and in that sense, the timeline, you know, it's all mixed up together. But you can see them frantically trying to get all the paperwork in order to uh, uh, to make the thing make the thing work. Um, other than a sense of uh, how tawdry it was, and a lot of people also complaining, of course, that the um, New York got in there and got this thing, and Pennsylvania didn't get that. There's a lot of that going on. Uh, but uh, from my reading of, uh, of, uh, of the people involved with the treaties, which is, a, and that's what I've read, okay? I've not systematically read the congressional records to see what other voices are, are saying, other than from what I know from secondary sources. Um, again, the, the disputes are over uh, tactics and means, not ends, I think.
0: Were there any particular uh, battles with the local tribe here, the Lena and Lenape, or were they a peaceful
1: tribe? Um, the Lene Lenape are, are part of this broader configuration called Delawares at this point, right, uh, who are deeply divided among themselves. They're Western and Eastern groups. Uh, there are people who are trying to remain neutral. Uh, there are some groups of Delawares who actually are allied with the United States for a at one point, and in the uh, the famous Treaty of Pittsburgh of 1776, they're actually promised that they will be the 14th state. I'm not sure where that concept went. Um, uh, but uh, uh, again, the Delawares are a perfect example of the who should rule at home question and the home rule. I mean, they're. they're um, but also a perfect example of how, by the end of this war, almost all of them are against the United States, right? Uh, almost all of them, uh, for better and worse have come together uh, uh, around uh, that issue. Uh, the United States is clearly uh, while trying to make uh, treaties and uh, diplomatic arrangements with Native people when it must is um, um, you know native people understand where what, what the deal is and who their real enemies are right uh, And in particular it becomes clear that uh, native people who want to remain neutral want to you know, are, are just like the Moravians are... Um, um, as uh, I think it is, um, it's one of the Delaware chiefs who uses the phrase, we live in a world too narrow, right, uh, that our options are closed and uh, that uh, you know, we, have, uh, we have the uh, aggressive uh, pan-Indian movement on the one side and the aggressive uh, United States on the other, and uh, uh, the options are just, just, just shutting down, right?
0: Thanks, Dan. Um, I think I'm going to ask a question that will ask you to give some more nuance as well to the structural model but may lead you to make another global argument. I don't know. Um, I was really intrigued by, in your account of Pan-Indian uh, creationism, this notion of racial spheres, of separate mm-hmm. racial spheres, mm-hmm. that according to your account or implicitly would be hierarchized in a very different way than, say, Jefferson would arrange those racial mm-hmm. spheres in a text like Notes in the state of Virginia. So. I'm I'm interested if you could talk in either global and or local ways about where where blacks freed and enslaved in particular regions or locations, where are they, other than just saying they're being chewed up, I guess, too, um, where do they ally themselves? Uh, Are they alert, first of all, that Native Americans have uh, creation ideas that are informed by racial ideas that may be like and unlike European Americans? How do they respond to them, and in, in, in any way do these affect how they ally themselves during the various wars. Um.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a complicated question. You're getting at um, trying to articulate the ideas of you know, two groups of people who whose ideas are hard for us as historians to recover. People like John Moran. Yeah. Uh, well, OK, so uh, you, know, you, you introduced this as uh, another way of complicating the picture. And certainly, it is a complicated picture. I think that, um, you know, not all Na- uh, Native American nativists saw these questions in the same way. Uh, we have to put this in the context of the fact that this is the period in which um, Cherokees and other southeastern Indians are beginning to move towards enslaving African Americans themselves. Uh, the phenomenon really takes off after the American Revolution, but it's part parcel of the same period. Um, this was not unique to that part of the country. At the same time, uh, escaped um, enslaved African-Americans had long found refuge in Native communities. Um, uh, lots of, uh, of mixture had occurred throughout the, United, uh, you know, the Eastern United States. So I think it's not, it's not a clearly um, uh, an easily sorted out issue in terms of either how African-Americans saw these issues or how Native Americans did. Uh, there is evidence, for instance, though from Pontiac's War, which is at the beginning of this period, 1764-65, uh, that when uh, uh, Native war parties raided uh, uh, plantations and farms in uh, the Greater Cumberland Valley, they seem to have actually spared the enslaved population, killed white people, and left the blacks alone. Right? Um, that, you know, again, hints in the in the preachings of these prophets are. Uh, Saying what is on the one hand uh, a very um, to use your term hierarchical idea, uh, but the the argument is you know look what those white people did to black people if they're going to do that to us next, right? And so I think you know there's there um, the, the 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 universal hatred seems not to be there and it's a much more complicated view. And I think for, again for native for African Americans um, it would very much depend on where you lived among other things, right? Um, if you're uh, In South Carolina, it continues to be a real possibility to get to escape to Florida and um, in the colonial period uh, get freedom from the Spanish, which was something they often held out for African-Americans, or to mix in with the group uh, that is going to be known in a couple of decades as the Seminoles. Um, So again, this is a a, um, no clear answer that fits on my nice spectrums, which I now may need to throw away because they're way too structural. Um. we got time for one
3: more, I think. Okay. I just had a question about, you um, spoke a lot about the racial antagonism that is driving uh, the formation of the pan Indian movement or the nativist movement. And um, I was just wondering about this is a time, obviously, uh, when Native Americans are facing a world in which former colonies, separate entities under a, sort of the European Empire are struggling to find a way to reorganize themselves uh, uh, social politically into a new form of organization, uh, choosing a Confederacy, a loose Confederacy. And um, I'm just wondering, are there similar discussions going on in Native American communities? They're, they're witnessing this formation, the bringing together of these colonies, which they at one time could play against each other, uh, could form separate trees with that were in conflict with one another. Is there a similar discussion going along? I'm, Going on among Native leaders that, okay, look, there's this movement to form confederacies among sort of these people that are, have been our enemies, that are still our enemies. And if, if there is, how, what role does that play in this vision of a nativist movement among uh, Native peoples?
1: Yeah, thank you. And, and again, I highly recommend Greg Dowd's work on, on all of this. Um, there is a uh, short lived but ter- very successful confederacy of. Um, Native American groups in the in the Northwest, usually in the historical literature it's called the Ohio Indian Confederacy, uh, that runs this war in the 17, late 1780s and early 1790s. Right? It is an explicitly political alliance among uh, you know, formerly rivalrous groups, uh, led to some degree by the Miamis, but um, they're really making an effort to bring people together on uh, what seemed to be less um, Less the explicit spiritual lines of the nativist prophets and more a kind of um, parallel process to what's going on in the U.S. Confederacy in that period. I think we also need to put into that mix uh, what's going to happen over the next generation with the Cherokees adopting a new constitution, with similar developments among uh, the Six Nation Iroquois, right? Uh, And so I I think absolutely you can put them in, you know, a not just a parallel story, but a single story of how uh, various peoples in North America are reorganizing themselves politically and trying to find new uh, new centralized governmental forms in this in this period. actually one more that
0: of Go
4: this is maybe even more a footnote than a than a question, but um I was struck by the graph that you showed, the chart of the mm-hmm. increase in the, in the term whiteness mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. At, a, at a certain point, and it was really striking me that rather than being signaling the formation of a kind of racial uh, sphere or racial uh, tension at that point, it might have been signaling a transformation in a an already existing racialized understanding in the sense that in the period leading up to the revolution, particularly in this region, there was an understanding of race as an environmentally transformable phenomenon Mm -hmm. that was being transferred into, you know, our contemporary understanding of race Mm -hmm. as something inborn and, and unchanging. And so we see, particularly in the so-called Indian captivity narratives out of this region, the idea of a a transformable racialization. Mm -hmm. And that that seems connected to the idea of understanding the ways in which one could transform from a British subject to an American subject as a model of racial transformation into a post-revolutionary understanding of nationhood or, or national belonging mm-hmm. as an inborn or intrinsic, unchangeable phenomenon mm-hmm. in which native peoples might have figured right for that kind of racial transformation?
1: Right. Uh, again, complications. Um, this does seem to be the period when white people figured out that Indians were a race. I think that had not been clear earlier. The discourse had been largely black-white, not white-red. It is also clearly from the recent literature the period in which Indians figure out that they are red people and that whether they, they, I think they probably knew even earlier that Europeans were some other uh, uh, thing. Again, racial category, is that really the word to use for any of this? Uh, Are any of them using um, 19th century Darwinian ideas? No, right? Uh, but, uh, but these, these, these identities uh, clearly are taking hold. And for uh, Peter Silver, from whom that graph comes, uh, this, of course, this notion of uh, white identity becomes a, um, a uh, political tool uh, within uh, the U.S. community in which you – Argue that some people, particularly Quakers, are insufficiently sympathetic, using 18th-century sympathy doctrines, to um, uh, to the plight of white people, and therefore they are not sufficiently white people, right? Um, And so, you know, this 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 uh, this the the political as well as the as the uh, personal identity here is crucial. And maybe I just close with something that comes from Anthony Wallace in his book on Jefferson and the Indians. Uh, It's a line that has. um, uh really struck, stuck with me, although I can't quote it exactly. Um, he uh, really sees a, a, a strong connection between the Republican and dem- democratizing elements of the US Revolution and uh, this racializing of ideas about Indians in particular. And he argues that um, a monarchy can be multiracial and multiethnic because there's no assumption that all men are created equal. And so there is a place for lesser races in the political and social order in a monarchy, right? As soon as you embrace republicanism, as soon as you say that all citizens are equal, um, there is no way of justifying unequal rights for people who are all the same kind of people, right? <laughs> um, and, and that therefore, you know, it, it, it's hard to imagine a Democratic Republic uh, that could uh, make room for uh, Native Americans and for African Americans as full citizens of the polis, because uh, you're either in or you're out, and there's no. Uh, and of course, this is the period in which biological difference becomes the marker, right? Why are women out? Biological difference. Uh, why are African Americans out? Biological difference. Why are Native Americans out? Biological difference, right? So um, it's a, it's a complicated business, and I thank everybody for their complicating questions because this. Um, is an effort to impose some clarity on a mess.